I encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, we're going to be in verse 16 through chapter 11, verse 16. Um, If you're using the Bible that's provided in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 731, 731. And if you're not using that or not using your own Bible that you brought with you today uh, or not using one on your tablet or smartphone, uh, you also have a copy of our scripture passage in your bulletin. So whatever way, shape, or form you have God's word open in front of you, just make sure that it is open in front of you. And may God bless our time in his word as he shows us his great preserving mercy and the hope by which we navigate this life world as his people. And yet before we get into God's word, it is imperative that we go before the God who has given us his word and ask his mercy upon us, his people who are receiving his word. Let's pray. God, we open your word now and we ask your divine power Your spirit be at work within us by your word. For Lord, we need your divine guidance. We need your divine mercy. Lord, be upon me as a preacher of your word. And Lord, let us sit humbly under your word. And let us see clearly the Christ who is magnified by your word. It is in his name that we pray such things boldly and confidently. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This week I came across an interesting job uh, posting that is out there. Now don't be alarmed. It's not because I was looking at job postings that were out there. I just happened to see it in the news. And that is that the Anheuser-Busch company is looking for, they're looking to hire a uh, beer taster. Now, that would not be my uh, cup of tea or cup of beer in this case. Uh, But they're looking to hire a beer taster whom they will give a full salary and benefits to. Um, But there's only, now for some of you, that might sound like a great job opportunity. Maybe, maybe not. But there's only one caveat that is a fairly significant caveat as the Anheuser-Busch company looks for a beer taster to come on staff. That caveat is that they are not looking for a human. They're looking for a dog to try out and to test their new, I guess they're bringing it out, I don't know, it may already be out, their new dog brew. Yes, Connie, exactly. It's, it's, it's in, unbelievable. Um, wherever they find this dog, they're going to pay $20,000 a year and provide health insurance. So if Fido is getting on your nerves, maybe this might be the opportunity for you and for Fido. Now, some of you, you heard this about this kind of job, or maybe you've seen other job opportunities in the past that looked as, almost as if they were too good to be true. You, you wondered, okay, where is the fine print? Where is the caveat that's going to say, okay, that eliminates me. I'm not a dog. Otherwise, if this was humans, that would be my deal. Don't you find that in life a lot of times? And even un- understandably, sometimes we can find that kind of attitude when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to following Christ. 
I'll ask this rhetorically. Don't feel like you have to answer it, but I'll answer it honestly on my part. Have you ever felt like Christianity, becoming a Christian, following Christ, devoting your life to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, and becoming a disciple of his, surrendering, submitting your will to him in all things, that at one point, at the outset, it sounded very appealing, and yet you reached a point, or you've reached multiple points, where you've thought, is this all there is? Or something along the lines of, I don't know that I signed up for blank, whatever might be the case, challenges that come distinctly because you are following Christ. That's where we find ourselves a little bit in our passage today. It's with the people who have gotten far more or or who may have felt like they got far less than they signed up for as the covenant people of God. And yet, what we're going to see is that God's faithfulness to them, though it may have come through circumstances that they would not have signed up for willingly, they actually see that the glory of their God who reigns over them is not far less than they imagined, but far more than they imagined. And then it is from that point that the course of their life, of their service to their God, is set out and set before them, and they understand what it means to truly be the people of God. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 16 and following. We're not going to read all the way from chapter 10, verse 16, through 11, verse 16, right at the outset. We'll make our way through it over the course of our sermon, but we're not going to read it all the way at the outset. But we are going to see that our unwavering hope as the people of God must be grounded in the present grace of God upon us and the future reign of God over us. So understand this. Look at verse 16. We ended our sermon last week with chapter 10, verse 15, and now we pick up verse 16, and it says, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. If you remember last week's sermon, if you remember what we saw in the wrath of God upon the sin of Israel, God had promised that he would use the Assyrian Empire to the north of Israel as a tool, as a vessel of his judgment and his wrath upon sinful Israel. And so this passage today follows a pattern that we've seen from Isaiah 6 all the way to now, where God is pronouncing judgment upon, originally it was on, uh, on the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. God pronounced judgment and then promised grace. 
And now he gets to Israel, the northern kingdom, and he pronounces judgment and wrath upon their sin, as we saw last week in uh, chapters, chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 15. And now he promises grace after the wrath. And so what we see here in verses 16 through 19 is God says, yeah, I'm going to use the Assyrians as a vessel of my judgment upon Israel, but then I'm going to humble the Assyrians and their rebellion against me, and I'm going to wipe them out. The stout warriors that he will use to chasten Israel, they will have face a wasting sickness that will come upon them. And so God now promises, look at verse 20, with this understood, Assyria as a means of God's chastening discipline, but now God promises that his faithfulness to his covenant with Israel will not be forsaken. Look in verse 20 and following. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, that's the Assyrians, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel will be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Oftentimes, our following of Christ is not all that we expect it to be because we don't understand what is expected of us. The people of Israel and their distrust in God had placed their trust in their neighbors, the Assyrians. But now God, having brought judgment upon them, now He promises grace. You see in verse 20, verse 21, in verse 22, there's four different times a remnant is mentioned. God would judge the people of Israel and only a small number will remain. God is faithful to His people yet their sin will be snuffed out. And so God is saying here that He will bring them out of the fire of Assyria and He will bring them back unto Himself to the point where they will no longer trust in armies apart from God, but they will trust in the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. When you see this word over and over, remnant, 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 this is actually something that is a theme throughout Scripture in understanding God's merciful, His merciful grace. For God promises to preserve a people unto Himself who will be His no matter what they do to try to get out of His hand. That might sound odd to you. But if we as human beings were left to our own devices, we would run away from God. We would reject Him and we would turn and flee from Him. And yet God loves us too much to allow us to do that. And so as we see in verse 21, it says a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This is what it means to follow God. 
Now that word return, it illustrates a principle of literally turning from one way, their eyes, their hearts trusting in the Assyrians, and now turning the other way and saying our trust and our obedience is going to be before God. Understand this. We, you, will not saunter or swagger into the presence of God. You will humbly enter the presence of God via the road of repentance. If you understand your relationship with God in another capacity, apart from humility before Him, and worship of His holy name, and awe of His grace, then you do not understand God in a biblical manner. It is a God that you have created out of your own mind, and an obedience that you have designed, much in the way the the Israelites had, where they probably said, yeah, we'll take God, but we really need the Assyrians. What are the Assyrians, or what is the forces of Assyria that you need to forsake and repent of in your life? Where do you seek strength and preservation? Where do you saunter or swagger around and not come before a holy God in humility? This principle of the remnant or this, even this reference, verses 22 and 23, is actually referenced by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, in an effort to explain the mysterious sovereign nature of God's grace lavished upon uh, uh, the people of Israel and then also upon Gentiles as well. The Apostle Paul articulates that God preserves those not in the wide swath of those who are ethnic Jews, but those who are the people of God set apart by faith in the Son of God. So a remnant is not born by anything apart from faith that is wrought by the supernatural hand of God. So as we see the preserving nature of the remnant of God, follow along as we move on in verses 24 and beyond. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Verse 26 contains a couple of interesting biblical Old Testament references. You might pick up the the second one, his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. God is telling his people, the remnant in Israel, he's saying, do not fear the Assyrians, I will deliver you from them those whom you entrusted yourself to and who are now a threat upon you. I will deliver you from them just as I delivered your ancestors from the hands of Egypt. 
as they crossed the Red Sea. But the other reference, that's a little more interesting. The Lord of hosts, or a little more obscure perhaps, the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. This uh, uh, anchors back towards Judges 7. Remember when Gideon and his small army of 300 was used by God to ward off the enemies of Israel. And God, what, what God is getting at here is, I will protect my people though their opportunities, though their safety looks, looks as if it is in terrible danger. The grace of God, hear this, brothers and sisters, the grace of God is not found in keeping us from being aware of that which might terrify us. The grace of God is in the midst of that which might terrify us, showing us his triumphant, majestic glory over that which would terrify us. Are you beset by the sin that you cannot shake? Are you beset by the fears that God will prove himself unfaithful as you navigate some kind of economic hurdle, some kind of challenge with your children as they teeter on the brink of falling away from the faith? What is it that torments you? Do you look to solutions as if they are the Assyrians? Or do you entrust yourself to the God who delivers his people in the face of destruction? Look at, you might not pick up on this. I didn't, I read it a few times and didn't realize what was happening in verses 28 to 32. And then it was pointed out to me and I saw and I thought, wow. God, in speaking of the Assyrians and the threat that they would be to the people of Israel and of his promise of his protection and his provision for them, describes the Assyrians journeying towards Jerusalem as a, as a marching, marauding army uh, coming about to bring destruction of God's people as they are holed up in the holy city. Will the fortress hold? Will the walls protect us? Listen, verse 28, he has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Mitchmatch, he stores his baggage, and they have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. This is describing the Assyrians. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lysha. O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibeah, they flee for safety. This very day, now listen to this. This very day, he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Do you see that? God is saying to his people, you fear that which would be your destruction. Do you see in my hand your enemy will come and will knock on your door, but he who ravaged all the cities as he came to you, he will be able to do nothing but stand outside the walls and shake his fist. That will be the end of his reach over you. And yet we're not the same way, right? We see the storm clouds on the horizon, and we say, okay, here comes the big one. Here it comes. The flooding is coming. I hope, I hope the ark we've been building in our backyard is secure and ready to carry us. And yet we don't realize the storm clouds that terrify us. 
Our God is the God over the storm, and he will preserve us. And the wonder of his preserving of a remnant is that it is all to his glory and not out of our virtue or not out of our good. Brothers and sisters, I referenced the Apostle Paul back in Romans 9 a few minutes ago. We, as the church, are the outworking of the remnant of whom God has preserved. We are trophies of His grace bought by the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ our Lord. The greatest enemy that could come marching for any of us is the enemy of death itself. And though it might grab hold of us with an arm and even wrap around us a bit, our risen Lord Jesus Christ who has defeated the grave promises that death will not have the last word over all who are His. For as death tries to pull us down into the eternal destruction that, that, that is wrought by death, Christ, the resurrected Lord who has atoned for our sins, grabs us out of the grave and brings us to Himself. And so when I asked you earlier at the beginning of the sermon, as basically saying, do we understand what it means to follow Christ? The point that we're getting at here is not just a personal identity, but it is a life change to the point where we who are in Christ have been brought already from spiritual death to spiritual life. Is this the case with you? Have you been brought from spiritual death, born into spiritual life, where you are now part of this remnant, this new seed that God is growing as abundance of His grace? To think of it on a very basic level, have you returned from the Assyrians that you trusted into, trusted in, to the God who has created you and who rules over you? God promises to preserve the remnant, but He also promises beyond that, not just to preserve us, but He promises to be our hope. Let us finish chapter 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It's just interesting. It's no accident where God described the Assyrians in verse 15. You remember at the very end of last week, he described them as an axe in his hand as, as a means of judgment. And now he says he will destroy them with an axe. A warning to all of us at thinking too highly of ourselves. But not only does God preserve His people with His preserving might, He sends to us, He promises to us a promised Messiah. Look at chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Let's pause right here. Let us pause. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is anticipating one who would come out of the royal line of Israel. Jesse, who, who was the father of David, who out of this royal line would come one who would redeem and rescue the people of God and would be their king and rule over them in perfect justice and in might for all time. The promised Messiah that they were anticipating 
God promises that out of the out of out of out of the 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 the, the destroyed wreckage that had been wiped out by the acts of the Assyrians, there would be born forth a Messiah, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who would bear fruit. And then verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Do you see here, an interesting fact, if you were to go back and look at it, we don't have time to do so this morning, but you could go back and look at seminal figures in Old Testament history, and you could find where it says at various times, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon this one, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon this one, or even some figures who the Spirit, the, the Lord gave a spirit of knowledge to, or a spirit of insight to, and yet what we see here with the promise of a coming Messiah is the Spirit of the Lord shall not rest upon him in a limited capacity, but in a full capacity because he is the Messiah, the promised one, who would come and rescue and redeem his people. So he will have, he will have a spirit of perfect wisdom and understanding, a spirit of perfect counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord is a perfect awareness of the power and majesty and might and goodness of God who reigns over his people. This is one who will, be, who, who will inaugurate a new kingdom and his people will, 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 will be submitted in awe before him as citizens of a perfect kingdom where there is no injustice, there is no wrong, there is no evil, there is no sin. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall, not be, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He will rule over all things, including his world. Look at verse 6 through 9. Not only will he have perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, perfect righteousness, but look at how, he will, how, how, his, how, how creation will unfold in the shadow of him who rules over all of this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall, shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead, lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." The Lord Jesus Christ will reign over all things. And in the shadow of that reign will be a perfect society. Animals will not be at war with one another. Children will not be bitten by little, by little snakes or animals that could do them harm. But it will be a perfect society where the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Concluding this promise of the Messiah, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now this is interesting. I want you to see something that you might would glance over if you first 
saw it, or you first read through it kind of at a cursory level. In verse 1, how is this promised Messiah described? He shall be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse. So a shoot and a root. Did the author here mix things up? Was this, did he, did he, I mean, they rhyme together. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Well, no. What the author Isaiah is showing us, what God is showing us, is that this one who would come would not just be another in the line coming from Jesse, from David, and and ultimately to Jesus, but he would be the one who created and sustains the very line through which he would be born. Jesus Christ knew what he was coming into because he was the one who created and sustained it before he arrived. Those who would be his heritage, who would be his ancestors, he is their creator. He is the root of Jesse. Then echoing back from previously in Isaiah 2, he will be a signal or a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. You know, brothers and sisters, it's strange. We consider, two con- we, we consider a contrast here between two entities here, right? The, 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 the people of Israel who were laid low and who were nothing but stubble waiting to be rebuilt. And yet it is from the shoot of Jesse is through whom they would be rebuilt. Is the Messiah that would come, his people would look to him and they would place faith in him and they would follow him. And that is the means by which they would be rebuilt. But so this very weak, small remnant and this very glorious, mighty, majestic Messiah And you know one piece of application for us today is to not worry about impressiveness in the eyes of the world. The impressive thing about the church, the impressive thing about us as Christians, is the fact that we are entirely unimpressive in and of ourselves. The impressive thing about us is the one who is our Messiah, who is our King. And so in a world where that might demand impressiveness, in a context where we might be tempted towards, um, towards, towards trying to hurry or trying to rush or trying to push impressiveness, we simply proclaim a Messiah who is creating a new peoples and who rules over a perfect world. And the best way that we are a witness before a world around us is not in impressiveness, but is, is, as the world may see it, but is, it is in, in being a foretaste of the kingdom society that we see modeled here. A people who are humbled before their Messiah and who are living out a spirit of love and gentleness and kindness and selflessness before a watching world. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Reading on, verse 11, lastly. The promised Messiah not only will come as, as the root of the rem, or the hope of the remnant, but he will come bringing forth those who would call upon his name. In that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and, the coastland, and from the coastlands of the sea. That's basically describing as far as the people of, of, of Israel had been spread out, he will gather them in. And then verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom, and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And then listen to this echo of Exodus yet again. Verse 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals and there shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. The Lord, our Messiah, will accomplish a second exodus as he brings his people to himself on that day. You may wonder or think, this Christianity thing, it seems like it was big on promises at the outset and yet is slow on fulfillment as I follow Christ. But before we give ourselves to such a mindset, let us consider these words of consolation and of hope for the people of Isaiah's day as words of promises made and promises still to be fulfilled for our day. For we live on this side of the Messiah who has come a first time. And we live one day, one step closer to the Messiah who will come a second time. And he will gather his people in to worship and to adore and to behold and to see him from people from all corners of the earth, all who once again are part of that remnant who believe in faith and not identify simply as Christians out of ease, but their lives have been set apart by Christ and set apart in obedience to Christ, and set apart in surrender to Christ. And so our promise today is in the Messiah who will come, who will gather his people from the four corners of the earth, and they will see and they will adore him who reigns over them. Let this be our impulse towards our, in our evangelism, in our sharing with other people of a society that unbelievers around us could only, could not even dream could be possibly true. Where a king rules over them justly and mightily and rightly. Where a king sustains them, not with promises of temporary pleasures, but with life everlasting. Where a people will be gathered and, and, and enemies like racism and injustice will be no more, but a people will be gathered of all stripes, of all colors, from all corners of the earth, delighting in and singing praises to the King who has gathered them, the Messiah who reigns over all things and who has birthed in them new life. May this fuel our evangelism. May this fuel our missions, making Christ known as available to the ends of the earth. And may this fuel our hearts, not believing a lie that Christ has been unfaithful, but believing in hope that it is Christ who is faithful, even when we are unfaithful.
And we look to that small remnant of people in Israel. And we do not see their might. But we see the might of the Messiah. Who they were told would be their Redeemer. And we recognize that He is our Redeemer. Let us pray. Lord God, may Christ, the risen and reigning Messiah, may we live in the promise of His preserving grace and in the power of His promise coming. And may we live in this moment in faithfulness and anticipation of the moment to come when we will be with Him. May that day shape this day in us, Your people. It's in Him we pray. Amen.